As you turn to Habakkuk 1, I thought I would share um, a little bit of um, my existential uh, state of mind. Uh, <clears throat> that, yeah, that there is more in this passage um, than I have time to fit into a sermon. It's much like this woman has more stuff than she's trying to fit in a suitcase than will actually go. Uh, so, um, pray for mercy for you and me. <laughs> As I uh, try to handle it honestly, and um, not exhaustively, but thoroughly enough. So, not, not an easy sort of thing, So as I've wrestled with this. So, Habakkuk, chapter 1, we're picking up in verse 12, which is um, Habakkuk's second complaint to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and he makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this is a difficult passage, one that is wrought with um, all kinds of questions, with ambiguities in the text, and then the things that are clear often trouble our hearts as well. And so be gracious to us this morning. Help us to understand uh, the big picture ideas of your word this morning. Help us to see how they connect with the struggles that we experience, the times when we're in hardship, when we're experiencing difficulty and things don't always seem to make sense. So sort that out for us this morning. For your your glory, for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you spend uh, a a bit of time around my household, what you will find is that one of the most common phrases or exclamations that is currently going through my household is, seriously? (laughs) It is one person's most common phrase, and I've begun to find them. Uh, This is my attempt to fund my um, retirement 
uh, because they say it so frequently, and they are currently deeply in debt to me, their father. So, uh, but it, it is a phrase that pops up because it, it expresses the fact that we don't understand something, that, that there's cognitive dissonance that we are experiencing. For instance, I was reminded this week as I pondered cognitive dissonance and the, phrase, the word seriously, uh, I, I thought of the accident in lawsuit that we experienced a few years ago, and I had a series of seriouslys that kind of came to my mind. Uh, seriously? The fact that they were driving on a suspended license is inadmissible? Didn't make sense to me. Some of you have probably been in that kind of shoe, those shoes where the things that were introduced as evidence and excluded from evidence were confusing to you. Seriously, we can't use our accident reconstruction, which proves that Amy's account of the accident was actually correct. Seriously, the police officer misplaced the accident report, which included the witness's contact information, which verified Amy's account of this thing. Seriously, I could go on. There were many things that surprised me about this. Habakkuk here has a number of seriouslys that he is expressing in his second complaint. He was complaining initially about the unrighteousness that he saw in the nation of Judah, and God responded with this idea that he's now sending the Babylonians. And Habakkuk has another series of complaints that he raises before God. And so I'm kind of putting these summaries into the mouth of Habakkuk. And the first would be, seriously, are you the God I know? That's an important question that Habakkuk sort of raises. When we look at the Psalms, as we've done in the past, we see that oftentimes the doctrine of who God is is used to clear up confusion that the psalmists possess with their circumstances, uh, but here it seems that the doctrine of God is creating confusion for Habakkuk because what he is seeing fall out does not line up with how he sees God. And therefore, he's severely confused. And it begins with this confusion. Are you not from everlasting Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, there's a whole lot of theology that is packed in this one question, this one complaint. Because what he sees, and what he has heard from God does not mesh with the idea that God is everlasting, that God is covenantally committed to his people, that God is holy. He's experiencing this disillusionment this confusion, or, as I've said, cognitive dissonance. He's familiar with passages like Deuteronomy 33. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms which hold his people tightly. And so he knows of that, and yet he sees this. He would know of Isaiah because Isaiah has written before him, and Isaiah 40 recalls, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. 
His understanding is unsearchable. And so we see this idea of of God as the everlasting God, as God as the the, uh, ancient of days, that He is not a God of the moment. He's not a God who is trapped in time, who's just trying to make the best of it in light of the circumstances that He is experiencing like you and I do. Rather, He is the God who is eternal, He is the God who is unchanging. He is the God who has made plans from of old and now in history is beginning to unfold them. This is not something that has caught God by surprise. Habakkuk continues in that he affirms the name Yahweh that was given to Moses, the name that was revealed in the context of covenant relationship, the one who would be the God of the people of Israel. And they would be His people. And this in turn affirms the Abrahamic covenant, that promise that we see in, in, uh, as the covenant sign is given in Genesis 17, uh, that I will be their God and they will be my people, which is really what the Old Testament is really about when we stop and think about it. And so uh, he's wrestling with that fact. Here come the Babylonians. Aren't you our God? Aren't we your people? The Babylonians are very dangerous. But God is also the Holy One, one who is set apart from, one who is above or over creation. He is, in fact, as we see in Isaiah 6, holy, 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 or the holiest one of all, one who is set apart from purity, for purity, rather, and His people are set apart for purity and holiness. And so as as Habakkuk thinks about the coming of the Babylonians, this doesn't make sense in light of who he knows God to be. He's having a great existential crisis. And he, he lays it out with this, with kind of the yets, I guess. Uh, which I'll hit right now. Yet you ordained them as judgment, yet you established them for reproof. He is affirming that the rise of the Babylonians, just as God had told him in his, his reply to Habakkuk's complaint, that their rise is not an accidental thing, it's not a coincidental thing, but it's something that he has brought up. He has ordained it. He has appointed it. He has established it. And not for a good thing, so to speak, initially, anyway. He's established them for judgment, to hear and decide a case, which is the idea that's found there. And that judgment will mean that Israel, or Judah rather, since it's just the southern kingdom uh, at this point, uh, that they will be on the wrong side of this case. They will be ruled against in this particular case, and therefore Babylon will function for their reproof or their rebuke or their correction, however you want it. Now, God has established 
Babylon for this purpose, precisely because God himself has ruled against Judah. And now he's going to punish and correct them through the Babylonians. And so as they see their defeat at the hands of the Babylonians, they're not to understand that God is weak. They're not to understand that God has been defeated by the gods of the Babylonians. They're to understand that this is the work of their God in keeping with his covenant promises to them, some of which we talked about last week. Deuteronomy 28 talks about the curses of the covenant should the people be turning away from him, which is precisely what they have been doing. But we also see in 2 Samuel 7, talking about the Davidic king, I will be a father to him, and he, will, uh, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And so Habakkuk and the people of Judah are to understand that their king, who is of the line of David, who has been, in a sense, adopted by God, has sinned profoundly, and now the rod of men is going to be exercised against him and them by God. It's in light of this, I think, that he exclaims right there in the middle of verse 12, we shall not die. Although, some have translated this, shall we not die? The exact opposite intention. And if you want to go a little further, there is a rabbinical gloss that takes place later on that says, you will not die, connecting with the fact that God is everlasting. But this is not about God. This is about God's people, Judah, and what is their fate? Is it that God is going to preserve them, or is Habakkuk afraid that God will, in fact, destroy them? It is, I believe, the former of those two things. This does not mean the end of Judah. This does not mean that the nation will perish, precisely because there is the covenant promise in Deuteronomy 30 that after they've been scattered to this foreign land, they will repent because God will circumcise their hearts. They'll seek him with all of their hearts, and he will bring them back into the land. And so Habakkuk, I believe, is clinging to this promise of the covenant, that though discipline comes to God's people, it's not the final word, but that he will, in fact, restore them and bring them back. They shall not die. We see this concept in Ezekiel, who is um, a couple of years after uh, Habakkuk. Same time frame, same set of circumstances. For instance, in Ezekiel 6, it says, Yet I will leave some of you alive. When, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword and when you are scattered through the countries. And so uh, the, the destruction that comes upon Jerusalem will not be absolute. There will be some who will be spared, some who will be exiled, some sent to other countries. Ezekiel goes a little further to this in chapter 9, when in one of those visions we cannot quite grasp, 
that sort of exceed our capacity to understand what goes on in Scripture sometimes, when essentially the Holy Spirit grabs Ezekiel by the hair, because he's already in Babylon as the part of the first part of the exile, brings him in the Spirit to Jerusalem and the temple, where he sees the idolatry that's taking place in the temple, and then he is told that he is that the Holy Spirit is going to seal those who sigh and groan over the sins of Israel. The Lord said to him, or uh, referring to the Spirit, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And the, the point of that is that they are going to be spared when the judgment comes upon Jerusalem. Okay? We see this then in the New Testament as well with the prediction, uh, the prophecy of, of the struggle between the dragon and, and the woman. In Revelation 9, they were told to, uh, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who have not had the seal of God on their foreheads. And so the judgment that is to come in the future is similar to the one that, that took place in Jerusalem in 586 B.C., that those who have been marked by the Holy Spirit shall be spared of that judgment. And so what we're intended to understand from this is, is a picture of a God who faithfully keeps His covenant. He faithfully keeps the blessings of the covenant, and he also faithfully keeps the curses of the covenant. In the midst of the experience of the judgment is precisely when God makes the promise of a new or renewed covenant. It says the Babylonians are coming, that in Jeremiah 31, we have the promise of the new covenant. It's as Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon that we have the promise of the renewed or new covenant in Ezekiel 36 and 37. So God is not abandoning his people. But he's promising, I will be your God. I will forgive your sins. What you are experiencing is discipline or chastisement. It is not ultimate destruction. Trust me. Trust me. How are we to think of this as we live on the other side of the cross? Uh, you know, we live after the coming of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. We're to remember, as it says in Hebrews 13, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning, he hasn't changed from, back, from how he was dealing with Israel back then. He's still the same God. He's still concerned for our holiness. He's still concerned for not just our purity, but for our blessing. And he's going to be at work. We are reminded in Romans 8, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus precisely because Christ has died for His people. Christ has redeemed His people. And so we are secure in His hand as a result. And so when we experience hardship, which we will, 
We are not to think that somehow Jesus has forgotten us. We're not to think that Jesus has forsaken us. But rather, we see that on the basis of, the, of his death and resurrection, that Jesus will refresh us as well as make us holy. You see, John Newton, I'm glad I'm reading Newton this year. He notes in one of his letters that there is a provision in the covenant of grace that the Lord in his own time, returns to convince, humble, pardon, comfort, and renew the soul. Newton speaks often of the reality of of how we are oppressed by our temptations and our failings, which are often there so that we are humbled and relying more upon God and less upon self. And that plays into all of this. This is what God is doing. He's bringing the Babylonians so that, God, so that the people of Judah will stop relying on their idols and begin to rely on the Lord. And they will do that. And you as a Christian, God still does that. He still brings hardship into your life so that you will rely less on your idols and more on Him. So that you will be humble, not arrogant, and resting more fully, Jesus. And so, so in answer to Habakkuk's first, seriously, the response is God faithfully preserves us while correcting us. That in fact, this is completely in keeping with how God has revealed himself. It's not an aberration. Habakkuk would again say, seriously, aren't they worse than us? Back to God's decree. They're going to be judged. They're going to be reproved or corrected. And Habakkuk is expressing concern not simply over the what is going to happen, but the by whom it's going to happen that these Babylonians, as God's chosen instrument, don't deserve to be God's chosen instrument. He's referring back to the reality of God as the Holy One because he speaks of Him as of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And now, there's a little bit going on there shall we say. We recognize John 1.1. This is the message we have heard from him and that we proclaim to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is holy. There is no sin in him. He takes no pleasure in sin, but we know that God sees everything. God is omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing, and so there's a sense in which God does look upon sin. The implication in the verb is look upon it with favor. That somehow God is approving of the sin that he has knowledge of. That's really what Habakkuk is getting at, which is not as clear, perhaps from this translation, as it is from the NASB. So, Mark? Mark? 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, it supplies that with favor to clarify what's going on. Okay. Habakkuk's complaint is that God is using a wicked nation to judge Judah. He talks about how God is silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Are you going to keep being silent while this takes place? Is this complaint? Because Babylon is swallowing up all of the weaker nations. And the reason they're doing this is not simply to gain more power and, and to have more geography, but they need the resources of the other nations. They need their wealth in order to sustain their empire. They are a predatory nation precisely because um, their appetite's too big. They want to live the luxurious life, and they cannot sustain their own luxurious life, and therefore they are like a parasite that feeds off the other nations. That word swallowing there just is sort of is intended to make you think of eating something. And what happens when you eat a meal? You chew it, you swallow it, but then your body absorbs what it needs from the food so that you are able to grow and be healthy and fight really nasty colds. They're devouring nations to absorb their wealth and resources for their own benefit. Babylon is an insatiable nation that is using violence to support its lavish lifestyle. If you're one of those people like me who watches The Walking Dead, okay, some of you probably go, I saw it right now, people, are, he's nuts. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, I watched that show. I watched that show. It's an interesting study in humanity is what it is as people struggle with character in the midst of all this. But anyway, there's this, there's this one group called the Saviors, wrongly named. They named themselves. They see themselves as sort of the Savior of everyone else, led by a guy named Negan, and hopefully I'm not giving away too much in terms of uh, plot twists. But this group, what they do is it's like of old. They make vassals of other communities, they steal their wealth while contributing really nothing but under the guise of, we're going to provide protection from you. And so they're parasites upon other communities through violence and wickedness to sustain themselves with uh, as little effort as is humanly possible. It's human nature. Do as little as you can to get as much as you can, Right? They're, they're Babylon on a smaller scale. That is a picture of what Babylon is doing. Now, Habakkuk makes this, from our perspective perhaps, this weird turn. <laughs> he starts talking about fish and creeping things. Now, the parallel of this Hebrew poetry is what gets us uh, into this initially. The, the, the main point is not that 
you know, he's made them as if they have no ruler. There's no governing body over all the nations. Uh, there was no, at that time, uh, there was no UN or NATO or something. And so these smaller nations were at the mercy of Babylon, who is the fisherman, or like the fisherman. They are vulnerable and indefensible, a lacking defense against the fishermen. Uh, They're uncoordinated in their attempts to resist Babylon and its gigantic war machine. It's interesting that uh, fishing was a much more popular vocation in Mesopotamia than it was in Judah at that particular point in time. Okay, And we see the use of technology on the part of the Babylonians here. The same thing happened in Egypt. Uh, we see hooks, we see drag nets, we see fishing nets. Uh, they, they're not just there with poles catching one fish at a time, but they found a way to be very efficient about how they catch fish because there's a lot of mouths that need to be fed. They need to increase the catch, and they've been using technology to do this. And as a result, in both Egypt and Mesopotamia, they had fishing guilds, similar to the other guilds that would take place, different vocations. And uh, you had to belong to the guild in order to uh, practice that particular vocation. And one of the other aspects of that vocation uh, or guilds was gods. You had to offer sacrifices to the god of that guild. And that's part of why we see this worship language enter into this. They, they make offerings and burn incense to their nets and their drag nets. They're being good Babylonians. They're being good fishermen. And while they're not part of the fishing guild, what they're really doing is um, worshiping their military power, which enables them to conquer nation after nation after nation. The capital city of Babylon, for instance, had about 500 acres of land, but contained almost 1,200 temples. Okay. They were not a godless people. They were a people of many gods <laughs> and many not-so-good gods. Habakkuk is worried that Babylon is going to continue its rampage through the ancient Near East unhindered. Will God stop it before it gets to Judah? And this, I think, in a sense, reveals Habakkuk's self-righteousness. And as we struggle with this as well, it reveals our self-righteousness. Because, remember, he's using a wicked nation to discipline his people. There's a sense in which Habakkuk is saying, how, how, how dare you use those wicked Babylonians, even though I've just talked to you about how wicked Judah is. But they're worse than us. How can you use them to chasten us? Well, who was God supposed to use <laughs> to chasten Judah? 
was there a righteous nation nearby that God would use to chase a Judah? Some nation that had gotten it all together and therefore had the moral authority to come and to speak to Judah about, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. There was none. And so God can use a crooked stick to write straight. And that's what he's doing here. God uses unrighteous people to chastise and to discipline his people. This is a reality that sometimes we need to um, own up to. Your teacher who corrects you at school may have many flaws and may be a great sinner, but they have the right and responsibility to correct you so that you do well. Your boss may be morally corrupt, but they have the authority to correct you at work. Your parents, and I'm one of those, we don't have to be perfect. In fact, we won't be perfect. But we are responsible to correct our children. So parents, don't wait till you have it all together before you correct your child. You'll never get there. And they'll be a nightmare. Okay. So God can only use unrighteous people to do this. So we really have no place to say, I, I, I can't take correction from that person because they're more messed up than me. As I think about this for a moment, my prayer, when I talked about America, I was, I was thinking about my sermon and I thought of one of one of the ways in which America and the American church needs to be corrected precisely because we've fallen into one of the sins of America, and that is the, the quest for prosperity at the expense of wisdom um, debt. The American church is greedy. That's why we have the, the um, prosperity of the prosperity gospel. The, should I say the popularity of the prosperity gospel. Scripture warns us in Proverbs 22 that the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave of the lender. And when we're honest and look at our government's debt, um, did you know that, now this is October, back in October, $6.2 trillion of our nation's debt, that's not consumer debt, our nation's debt, was controlled by other nations, foreigners. That's 39% of our debt was, o- was owed to other nations. And for kickers, China was the one we owed the most money to, or $1.2 trillion. I've been reading my World Magazine, There's been a lot of articles on China, and one of the things that China does is it uses debt to silence nations that would be critical of their human rights policies and the persecution of various religious groups. That's what they do. They use debt against other nations. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not trying to be a prophet, but I'm saying... This is a problem for us since an unrighteous nation holds our debt and has control over us. 
It's part of God's discipline, perhaps, to, to constrain and rebuke our greed. And so God uses sinful instruments to fulfill his purposes. It would be the answer to Habakkuk's second seriously. His third one, and much shorter one, is seriously? I have to give them, referring to Judah, this message? Verse, uh, well, chapter 2, verse 1 is sort of a parenthetical statement. Uh, it's connected to his second complaint, but it's not necessarily part of his second complaint because he he's, doesn't seem to be talking to God anymore. He's talking about what he's going to be doing. And he says, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. Now, is this referring to him just standing on the wall or a rampart uh, like that? Does that mean he's, he's standing on this wall and he's looking out and seeing if the Babylonians are coming yet in answer to uh, God's uh, stirring them up? Is that what's going on? Is it a more technical sense in which there's a, there's a place um, where prophets watch and receive visions as, as part of the temple? We're not really sure. But we do recognize that in Isaiah 21, as well as Ezekiel 3 and 33, this idea of watchmen is given to various prophets. And in here, Habakkuk is taking that role of watchman. You want to be high so you can see the enemy when he arrives, before he arrives, so you can prepare in time. You're above the fray and have a different perspective and are able to see more of what is happening around you. And that is where Habakkuk is. He's trying to gain a fresh perspective. Why does he need this fresh perspective? I think it's part because uh, hardship and discipline bring about great confusion within us since we tend to have, as Albert Martin mentioned, little teacup minds. And so part of what Habakkuk is doing that I think we can follow his example in um, is watch to sit upon our watchtower, so to speak, because we remember who Jesus is, because we remember all Jesus has done for us, we are intended to find assurance in that, in who Jesus is, in what Jesus has done, not in our subjective feelings. We're not intended to find comfort in, in the midst of our trial and struggle in ourselves and what we think, feel, experience. Okay. We are intended to bring our questions to God instead of running away from God. In fact, this is why Jesus gives us access to God. So that when we are confused by our circumstances, we go to Him, not from Him. Prayer is largely how we wait. And so we watch and we wait, and while we're waiting, we're praying. But we also recognize that there is one who is greater than us, Jesus, our great high priest, who intercedes for his people to save them to the uttermost, and that he is interceding in, for us in the midst of our difficulties so that we are sustained, so that we are kept, 
as opposed to overcome. I've been dialoguing with uh, Linda Knight this week because of uh, her, her son's blood clot. And initially she was overwhelmed, as any of us would be, uh, with the knowledge that her son had just had a, a serious medical event. And I reminded her of the everlasting arms. And she needed to hear that. She didn't need to be rebuked because she was overwhelmed, because she was fearful. She needed the encouragement that God was going to be with her in the midst of this hardship. And that God was going to be with her son in the midst of this hardship. And so she took, as as many of you know from the prayer request, great solace, great comfort in the fact that God's people were praying for her and for him and for them. How much more should we take solace in the fact that Jesus prays for us even when we don't have words to pray? And so we wait prayerfully to see what God does, to to see that his good purposes will in fact ripen. And I'm going to kind of close with this last story. It's the story of the, the Puritan John Flavel. And he noted at some point that there was a, before his sermon, one particular Sunday, he had prayed, Lord, may you convert someone through this sermon. And he was discouraged a little bit, I think, most likely, if he was like me, uh, that nothing seemed to have happened that day. Uh, There was no one who seemed to have uh, converted to uh, faith in Christ that day. Fast forward 86 years. John Flavel is dead. A man named Luke Short, who used to live in England, now lives in New England. He's coming near the end of his life, and he begins to think about his life one day. And he remembers a sermon that he heard from John Flavel, repents and believes. God brought his promise. God worked in answer to the prayer. It just wasn't necessarily in the time frame John Flavel was looking for. Sometimes we have to wait and trust that he will do good, even if we can't see it, even if we might never see it in this earthly life. So watch and wait for God to work, because he will. So in light of God's love to us revealed in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, we can be very confused when we experience hardship. We can think uh, that God has forgotten us or forsaken us, and it's then that we need to remember who God is. And that because He's holy, He's going to make us holy. And this means that He uses that the means he uses can at times confuse us because they seem to be more messed up than we are. Shouldn't you be making them holy first? We might think. In this confusion, we're encouraged to watch and to wait for God to work for our good as well as for his glory.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. That while you do work to discipline us, you do not work to destroy us. That your goal is for us because of Christ is has shifted from condemnation to transformation. Help us to wait for you in the midst of that very difficult process. Help us to trust you in the midst of those times when it's intensely painful. To know that you're going to make us like Jesus. And I pray that you would be making us like Jesus. As individuals and as a congregation. Doing the difficult things so that we become like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.